So turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we'll be looking in chapter 1. We won't be going very far into chapter 1 today, only about a verse and a half. But um, that is where we will begin, and as Todd mentioned, we begin our study of this whole book today. And I look forward to see what the Lord is going to teach us and show us and how He's going to grow us through it. As always, before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, again, here we are in the Old Testament and these are Your words. You are the Son of God, the Creator God. You are the one that spoke these words, that gave them through Isaiah the prophet, and they are for us, your church today, just as they have been forever. So Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, we would be convicted by your word. We pray that we would be led by your word, that your church would be strengthened and grew by your word. And most importantly, that you would be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so, as we come to the book of Isaiah, I've read lots and lots of introductory works on the book and different other things going on and how people have summed up the whole book and how they've summed up each individual part and spent a lot of time reading. People say lots of things about the book of Isaiah, about when it was written, about how it was written, about who wrote it, about, I mean, there's so much that you could get into them. And there's lots of categorizations that have been given concerning the book of Isaiah. Todd gave us one, that it is oftentimes called the first gospel, which is a great category for it because it talks about Jesus so much. And that's that's a good way to look at it. Or they say, well, Isaiah must have been the most important of all the prophets, because so much of his or his ministry was so long and it spanned so many years and so many kings and such an important part of Israel's history that obviously he holds this distinction as being the most important of all the prophets. For me, I like to look at Isaiah as a lot like the book of Romans, but for the Old Testament. Romans in the New Testament has this particular character about it because it systematizes all of the theology of the Gospels, even all of Paul and the Apostles, and brings it all together and shows us the very clear teachings about Jesus Christ and about salvation. Isaiah is just like that, except for it brings together the law, it brings together all the history that we find in the Old Testament, it brings together all the other prophets that we find in the Old Testament. And it does it in just one major work. And of course, that all of them points forward to one person, Jesus Christ. And so before we work through the book of Isaiah, we first need to learn some things about it, about the author himself, about its historical setting, to whom it was written, for what it was written. What is the primary message of this book? It would be easy to just see these as a collection of hard passages sprinkled in with a few things that we like to read at Christmas. But for most people, Isaiah is just this giant book that comes after Psalms and comes after Proverbs. And it's at the very beginning of what can seem 
very daunting thing to work through for a believer. It's a lot of chapters. It's a lot of imagery, a lot of difficult things to discover and work through. So finding out about these foundational aspects about the book is very important before we get into the real meat of the book. The temptation of any prophecy, of course, is to make it to fit for today or to put today into its pages. But instead, we have to read it for its historical context. I suspect that as we go through this book, it's going to take us the better part of at least two years to get through it. Obviously, we could spend our whole lives working through this book. Some of the commentators that I've read, that's what they've done, actually. They've just studied this book, and all of their works are about this book. And so you can definitely do that. But there are other books to study. So we're going to be, again, kind of going through this at a pretty good clip, but it's still going to take us quite a while to do that. And I think, but as we do that, it's going to give us a better understanding of not only the Old Testament, but also the whole Bible. And so as we look today, we're going to be looking at three main ideas. Isaiah the man, Isaiah's historical setting, and then Isaiah's mission and message. And so with that, look with me at the text at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through the first part of verse 2. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so we'll just jump right in. We don't know a whole lot about Isaiah the man. There's not a lot here for us. We have a little bit in the historical books. We have a little bit here in this book. We do read at the very beginning that he was a son, the son of a man named Amos or Amos, however you want to pronounce it. And we know that he lived during the reign of four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This would have been over 50 years of ministry. As you go back through and you look at the different reigns of these kings, this is a long time. This probably took place around 700 to 600 B.C. in that range without giving exact dates. So there's still around six or 700 years before Christ. Throughout the book, he has given easy access to the kings. As you read um, through uh, Second Kings and Chronicles as well, you can see that Isaiah has an easy path to the throne. He doesn't have to continually go through all these channels. He can just go talk to the king, which means probably that he was had some sort of noble birth. He probably was a very important man who came from an important family, even before he was called to the Lord. There have been some suggestions that even King Uzziah may have been his uncle. Not sure about that, but Isaiah was probably an important man before he was called directly by the Lord. He was married. He had two sons whom we'll read about. All uh, They had very significant names, the two sons, Sheer Jashub which means uh, a remnant shall return, probably not a popular name in Israel at the time, but it had a meaning. 
which will play itself out in the, the prophecies that Isaiah gives. His second son was Meir Shalal Hashbaz. Again, probably not making any top ten lists. It means hasting to spoil, hurrying to pray. Those names will those names will make sense when we get to where they are at in the text. Hosea, who was a temp, uh, contemporary of uh, Isaiah's, also named his children with very descriptive names. I encourage you to go to Hosea chapter one and look at those names. They're not as uh, nice as Isaiah's names for his kids. So this is not a new thing for. For uh, the prophets had used their children's names even as a part of their ministry. He was called into ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. We'll study that when we look at chapter 6. He was willing to go even though the Lord had a very difficult message for him to deliver. You can read about it in 2 Kings uh, starting around first or chapter 14. If you want to go ahead and be turning there, we'll probably refer to it a couple times throughout uh, today, Second Kings 14 through 20 or so represents his life and ministry. There are similar passages in Second Chronicles as well, and he we read in Second Chronicles even that he wrote this whole other book about the life of King Uzziah, which has been lost to history. In all likelihood, Isaiah met his end during the end of King Manasseh's or during the reign of King Manasseh who came after Hezekiah, uh, maybe even on the orders of the king himself. Not entirely sure. The Talmud, which is a, a Jewish book, says that Isaiah was killed by being sawn in two, which is pretty rough. Uh, Hebrews 11 makes an allusion to this. So he served with faithfulness, and he was eventually killed for his service. Long life of ministry. One thing I want to bring out about Isaiah the man as we go through this book is that he was just that. He was just a man. Like all the other prophets of the Old and New Testaments, they were just ordinary folks doing the work of the Lord. We might want to be quick to attribute to him some sort of extraordinary blessing, meaning that he was not like us. I couldn't have done what he did. But Isaiah was just a man delivering the plain truth of God. And how do we know that it's the plain truth of God? Well, we read this morning, verse 2, the first part of verse 2, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. These are not the words of a mere man, but the words of God himself speaking through a mere man. Now, we do believe that Isaiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But this wasn't a kind of mechanical inspiration is what it's oftentimes called. It wasn't like Isaiah was forced in to sit in a chair and forced to write the words that he was writing, meaning God didn't move his hands, you know, even though Isaiah was trying to resist or something. You get these weird pictures of this. But instead, he worked through Isaiah in history in a time, in this man's life, working through him to deliver his word. The whole work of Isaiah is God's word. We can be sure of that 100% because of what we read here, because this is all God's word. Isaiah was a man that predicted events that wouldn't happen for another hundred years in the coming of Cyrus. 
Then for another several hundred years in the coming of Christ. As we read through this, one of the hopes that I have for it in our own faith is that our faith would be strengthened as we see the very word of God prove true over and over again. As we read through this, we're going to see and understand more of the things that we read about in the New Testament. Many times Christians want to take the New Testament and just grab a hold of that and then kind of push the Old Testament over here. But what I hope that we see is that this Old Testament, this Old Testament prophet is why the New Testament prophets were writing. This is their material. This is who they quoted from. This is what they were reading. He doesn't need to prove this to us, of course. God doesn't need to prove that his uh, word is true at all. But he continues to do that because we are his kids and he, and we need this and he does that anyway. So pray that the God, that God would use this study as we go through this book to increase our faith more and more. So next is Isaiah's historical setting. As we read, Isaiah's historical setting spans these four kings that were mentioned there. Again, around 50 years of ministry, more, a little bit more. Another important thing for us to remember is that Israel at this point, oftentimes we just say Israel, and we kind of think of this whole nation and everything that is coming of this whole nation. But Israel, in fact, at this point in its history, was two separate kingdoms during this time. There was Israel, or the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, as it's sometimes called, in the north, and then Judah to the south. Judah was paired with the tribe of Benjamin. Remember from the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and then these 12 were living in this nation, and at some point they split apart after Solomon's death, and two of the tribes went south, Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes were in the north, and their capital was Samaria. So you have the southern capital with Jerusalem, the northern capital was Samaria, King Uzziah, or as he's called in Second Kings, was he was named Azariah. He was a good king through his reign. Todd read a little bit about him this morning. He did a lot of good things. Israel had a very strong military during this time. They had a very strong economy during this time. But Isaiah was just, or Uzziah was just a mere man as well. He thought he was indeed too strong. He tried to act like a priest. He thought he was super special. And uh, he walked into the temple and attempted to perform the duties of a priest. And uh, the Lord struck him down and gave him leprosy for the rest of his life. You can read about that in Second Chronicles or Second Kings 15. And then this man named Jotham took over. And as he took over, there was this upstart civilization known as the Assyrians, who were beginning to make waves in the Near East. Their king had an interesting name, Tiglath-Pileser, and he was this power-hungry king, and he would stop at anything to get what he wanted. The northern kingdom began actually paying tribute to this Tiglath-Pileser. You read about that in 2 Kings 15. And while Assyria grew, Israel and Syria even began incursions into Judah. 
And so Judah not only had to fear Assyria, but the northern kingdom was beginning to attack Judah and Syria. The nation was attacking Judah. And all of this kind of continued into the next king, King Ahaz, who became so afraid of Israel and Syria, they actually called upon the Assyrians for help. They went to this pagan nation that worshipped pagan gods and asked them for help rather than their own creator. And of course, Assyria was more than willing to assist in the elimination of their enemies. Uh, this, of course, was not good for Judah. Assyria actually put their own idols in the temples in Judah. You can read about that in chapter 16 in Second Kings. And in 722 B.C., Assyria sacked Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, routed the ten tribes of Israel, and scattered them into captivity. And that was pretty much the end of those tribes. Sometimes they're called the missing tribes of Israel. Hezekiah then begins his reign a few years later. And it began with this threat of the Assyrian invasion. He would eventually defeat the Assyrian king Sennacherib. But he didn't really do anything. It was because the Lord himself, an angel of the Lord, killed a hundred and 85,000 Assyrians in one night. And that that was a hard blow for the Assyrians. Hezekiah would become very ill, and he sent for this emissary from another uh, upstart civilization, Babylon. And this Babylonian emissary would come visit him and saw all the riches of the southern kingdom and saw all that could be gained by possibly taking over this kingdom. And this was not good. Isaiah the prophet was not happy about this. In 2 Kings chapter 20, we read about this. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. <clears throat> Second Kings chapter 20, verses 16 through 20. And again, this is Isaiah after hearing that this Babylonian emissary was allowed to see the the riches of Israel, or of Judah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. When Hezekiah said, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security for my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all of his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought the water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles and the kings of Judah? I think it's just a fascinating little bookend for Hezekiah who was given this horrible prophecy and he says, this is good. Why not if there's going to be peace and security in my own day? The prophecy is what the whole second half of the book of Isaiah is about. Not only Babylonian captivity, but Israel's deliverance from that. So they have a lot that's going to be happening and you can continue to read there in Second Kings, I encourage you to do so. 14 through 21 really kind of capture this whole 
thing that's been going on in Israel. This historical setting is important because it shows us what Isaiah is talking about. Without it, we have no idea what he's talking about. These aren't prophecies removed from history, but these are prophecies that are given in the midst of history. Another thing, one purpose of this book, the main purpose of this book, was for the teaching, correction, and comfort for the people then. We cannot somehow backwards apply the events of our day and the people of our day into this book. Now again, we can derive our own applications from this book, and we will. We can look at the things that it tells us about, the events of Jesus' life, the events that are going to happen in the future. Absolutely, we can look at those things. But we cannot take the events of today and somehow fit them into this book, as so many, so many try to do. That's not only an instruction for this book, of course, but that's for any interpretation of the Bible. We have to read it for its time and its place. For us today, that we had to look at what those prophecies meant then and what they pointed forward to, ultimately, Christ. They are the words of God given to His people, but also to the whole world. Hear, O heavens, that's what He says. Give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. When the Lord speaks, we do well to stand by and listen. So much of this book is about those times when the Lord spoke and the people did not listen. And so for us, this serves two purposes, and we have to be careful when we look at this and we read about these other nations. We have to see ourselves in this book as the people who did not listen. The book is about the consequences of sin. Obviously, we see ourselves without Christ. But we should also see ourselves in Christ as well. Obedience doesn't stop when we become Christians any more than it stopped for Judah when God brought them out of Egypt. It shouldn't stop for us. It shouldn't have stopped then and it shouldn't stop for us now. Second, we have to learn that the historical books of the Bible aren't there to just preserve God's people or the history of God's people, but they're there to teach us how we should act and what we should believe. This book is no different. We'll read about God's judgment over the other nations, all these other nations that he's going to mention and the judgment that he's going to carry out against them. And it might be easy for us to think, wow, if those nations had only had a clue, then they wouldn't have been judged like they were. But instead, we should see ourselves in the mirror. We are just like the nations who haven't got a clue. Just watch the news if you have any doubt. And, if, and in that mirror, it shows us our sin, which ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. And so the history of this book has a point for us today. And then lastly, Isaiah's mission and message. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he is given a commission to go to the people of Judah with a message And this is not an easy message. We looked at that when we looked at the last portion of the book of Acts. Part of that message was there. This was an indictment, a judgment against the people for turning their back on the Lord. He is sending judgment to them in the form of these conquerors for in Assyria, for the north, Babylon, for the south. 
But in, in chapter 40, he's given another message. And that message begins with the words, Comfort. Comfort for people who will be taken away from everything that they hold dear. These two messages seem, messages seem to be polar opposites from one another, do they not? Does that mean that they're from a different author, as some have suggested? Some have suggested four to six authors for this book because they can't somehow believe that maybe all these things are tied together, which they are. Does it mean that God changes from the beginning to the end? That the God at the beginning is a different God from the God at the end? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. But it does show us that while the people are only ever evil continually, the Father above has made provision for them. And it is coming himself. God's provision for the people is called many things in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 7, he is called God with us, Emmanuel. In chapter 9, he is called Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. In chapter 11, he's called the shoot from the stump of Jesse. In chapter 12, he is my strength and my song. And we could go on and on and on through all 66 chapters if we wanted to. The book about, the book is about Isaiah, four kings, Assyria, Babylon, and everything in between. But first and foremost, it is about Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior the Son of God, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, the risen one, the one who ascended into heaven and right now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on behalf of his people. That's who this book is about. That's who Isaiah looked forward to and was glad. In John chapter 12, verse 41, John the Apostle says this, Isaiah said these things, Because he saw his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. He saw his glory and spoke of him, Jesus. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him. Like Moses, and Aaron, and David. And Isaiah set his hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. And he wrote about him, 66 chapters about him. It is safe to call this book the first gospel or Romans of the Old Testament or whatever because just like the rest of the Bible, it is about Jesus. And as we go through this book, we're going to see some very difficult passages. We're going to have to wade through some harsh prophecies about some of the other nations, even about the Jewish nation. And we may even be tempted to say, can't we just skip to the fun part? Because those are going to be hard passages. But it's those difficult passages that will set us up for the full glory that is to come. Because lest we forget, just like the nations of the world, we were once dead in our trespasses, fully deserving any wrath that we brought upon ourselves because we are called children of wrath. Sons and daughters of disobedience. Like sheep, we had all gone astray, each of us to our own way. But the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. By his, Jesus' wounds, we are healed. He made him who knew no sin 
to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is what Isaiah is about. I look forward to digging into it together. So in conclusion, let us be faithful students of God's Word. Let me encourage you, as you go through this week and others, go to those passages in 2 Kings, again, 14 through 20 or so, 21. Go to Second Chronicles and look at those passages. Read ahead, study ahead, come with questions. We'll look at this together. The depths of this book, again, cannot be completely delved this side of glory. So that's not what we're trying to do. But with the help of the Lord himself, we will grow through it as a church. So pray to the Lord that he would use our study of this book to grow us as a church, to grow us as individuals, and so that we might give him more and more glory. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we study this book together as your people, as we study in our own lives and with our families, we pray that you would guide us through it. We are so quick to see ourselves as the good guy, to see you as less and less so that we might be more and more. And so, Father, we pray that you convict us of that sin. Father, we pray that you show us more and more your son, Jesus, so that we might decrease, so that he might increase for his glory and in his name. Amen.